Okay, and welcome back then, Tim Davies, Fast Ship Performance, and I'm back in my attack shack where I'm dropping those truth bombs on your personal battlefields, helping you on your own success journey. I quite like the start, actually. I quite like that. I reckon I'm going to refine it, maybe refine it a little bit. Yeah, I might do that, and there'd be like a tagline, wouldn't it? Anyway, today, what are we going to talk about? Well, we're going to talk about an email that's been sent in to me, and it's quite an interesting one because it's something I have um, dealt with in the past, and so it's about conforming in the service. I've written an essay about this. Uh, before, and I will put a link to that uh, in below if I remember. But that was to do with my naval career when I wrote an essay back then, which um, was critical of naval sea action in the Falkland Islands of sinking the uh, Belgrano, I think it was, by the Conqueror. I think that's pretty much what I wrote. Um, and that wasn't applauded as a young naval officer. You shouldn't really do that. And But the essay is quite interesting because what you should do and what the essay does say is that never stop thinking. Yeah, that's the whole point. The essay, I remember the the, um, the Commodore of the college took me in his office and he said, look, this is not something you should be writing about as a naval officer in training. But he said, never stop thinking about these things and obviously always explore things, which of course is what I'm trying to do here, isn't it? Now, emails come in. Before I talk about the email, guys, uh, I will do the Red Service Inquiry into XRX Ray 204, which was Flight Lieutenant Dave Stark's aeroplane, which was unfortunately a fatality at uh, the incident at Valley. Um, early last year yes March last year I believe it was reports just come out um but before I do that I'm actually literally not having any beers for a week so that I can get my brain around all the other reports I've got to read as well which is my own one into um John Egan's uh death back in uh 2011 and uh, Sean Cunningham as well and then we'll go back into Mikey Ling and uh, Dave Montenegro and possibly even um uh, Wing Commander Firth Wigglesworth which was back in 2008 and I think that's the six airplanes that were damaged or I can't remember I've done some work on it but I'm also looking at other stalls in the final turn types event uh, which pretty much um, is what Dave Dave did and having read the reports just briefly having read the reports I think any one of us could have done what Dave did um, to be honest with you with the circumstances that he was in which was which it seems to be um, was a lack of sufficient currency for that particular evolution that he was flying either way guys when when someone dies, I don't just rush into delivering some narrative on this. And also, this is probably going to be the last one I'm doing because what I find is is when I hang on to the service in this manner, uh, it, it, I, I'm unable to push forwards and do things that I really feel are are valuable um, to me, especially with the companies that I work for and the things I'm trying to to build in my life. And, and the service can look after itself, and I'm sure it will. But that's quite an interesting one. And actually, to be honest with you. I did put up there, uh, nothing's changed since my service inquiry that I did back in 2011. That's not exactly correct. W what really I mean is there's a squadron out there that's still having a very high level of, um, uh, of well, say fatalities if you want, or just say flying incidents if you want, uh, more so than any other squadron in the Royal Air Force. It should be the one that has the least. Leave that there. We're going to talk about that. And then there is one I might do on the US Marine Corps F-18 versus C-130. But that's a 1,600-page document. And I was getting through that one when, uh, obviously, the report was released into Dave Stark's incident. I will caveat this by saying that I've flown with Dave in the past, and he's a, he's a, he's a fine, fine pilot. And um, obviously, he found himself in a very, very difficult place, which is all very sad, and it is very sad. Nothing good's going to come off that, by the way. Well, hopefully, some good will come off it, but it, the whole thing is, is pretty terrible. But let's talk about what we're talking about today, shall we? So this email's come in from a chap who I met, actually, a few weeks back. Um, good guy. I don't want to 
I'm not going to tell you exactly where uh, I met him, but I met some young guys that were going through flying training in the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy. And I'm not going to go too much into uh, his, well, I say specifics, but his specifics in this particular email, because of course he's in flying training. I'm not going to tell you what school he's in. I think he's quite advanced in flying training and he's frustrated and I get it because I was the same when I went through. And remember I was a Naval officer when I went through flying training and I ended up um, transferring to the Royal Air Force uh, I think it was after the OCU for the tornado. Did I do the tornado with naval? I genuinely can't remember. I think it was after the OCU or maybe just before the OCU. Either way, it was about August 2003. Um, and that's because I probably wasn't going to get single seat uh, in the Sea Harrier FA2 at the time. And I was probably more suited to a twin seat drive at the time. So, but also we, well, the Sea Harrier has been decommissioned. So there about nine of us that were offered places in the Royal Air Force, which was very generous of them. And in fact, the person that took me across is now the Chief Air Staff, a guy called Mike Wigston, who's out in America with um, General Goldfein at the moment, who's the um, who's the head of the United States Air Force. Guys, I am diverging here. What are we going to talk about? I'm going to read you his email with a little bit redacted on it, okay? Which means I'm going to miss a little bit out. Not as much as the service inquiry into the Red Arrows one missed out, but I'm going to miss a little bit out. Jeez, that was heavily redacted. And then I'm going to read um, my reply to him. And before I do that, I'm going to read you the Cora post that he talks about. If you don't use Cora, don't worry about it, guys. Um, there's no media on this. If you're watching this on, uh, if you're listening to this as a podcast, there's no media I'm showing you on this on YouTube. I tend to just film it anyway because some guys prefer YouTube. Um, but there is a Cora post out there and I'll post a link to that as well. It wasn't, I didn't think, a brilliant Cora post. I just answered some questions. And the question I answered was, what do fighter pilots do after retiring from the Air Force? Fighter pilot is a generic term. I was a bomber pilot and I was um, a flying instructor, obviously, but uh, it's the same thing. So I'll read you that first. And the reason I'm reading that is that um, this young guy in flying training who wrote to me, he quotes this and he quotes it for a reason. Right, a bit of tea in my fastship performance mug. Okay. Right, so I'll read this then. So what do fighter pilots do after retiring from the Air Force? So I wrote, change the world for the better. I recently retired after 20 years in the Royal Air Force. I had to stay for 16 years to get the pension, but I did an extra four as the squadron was, I was on was in a transitional phase and needed experienced people to help get it through. Currently, I'm with a company called Aerialis, who are making modular flying training aircraft, and I run their global strategy for them. Uh, this involves a huge amount of work, yeah, outside of the actual engineering of the aircraft, although I input into that as well. I act as a surrogate customer, uh, helping them understand the requirements for the avionics offering, informing them about how to architect their novel and thought-leading flying training system. I also meet with international customers, Defence staff, uh, companies that we partner with and integrate many other parts of the company so that we are joined and congruent on our messaging. And I was speaking to 22 Group um, last week as well, uh, Director of Flying Training. Only, uh, he was asking about, you know, uh, how, how does he, or how, how are they going to get people like me back into cockpits? And to be honest, I'm not overly convinced that's going to happen with the current way things are. And I'm 45 now, you know, those days are over. But I do speak to these people. And it's very interesting being reconnected with the service, but being outside. You do see it slightly differently. Uh, I write, I enjoy the variety, variety of the work, but I also like to have time to do other things I'm interested in. When you were in the military, you were expected to conform. And this is understandable as you're part of a large team of people with an aim and a purpose. But conformity represses creativity. And with hindsight, I don't remember many pilots I flew with being artists, author or musicians. The ones that did have those hobbies were often seen as odd, as was I when I started writing my blog on flying jets on fast jet performance. Now I've left the service. I have a great interest in the arts, architecture, music, painting, 
history. It's very odd, and I think it must have been there all along, but I just prioritised the job. That's very easy to do, as it can be super busy at times. 20 years passes quickly, believe me. So now I make some time every week to look at things that inspire me. This can be reading about great people, watching a documentary on something historical, listening to new musicians, or writing about subjects that I'm discovering. I make sure that this time is prioritised as it has a tendency to feed into my work that I'm doing. For example, the aerialist flying training system will lead students onto sixth generation aircraft. And this means that the old ways of teaching flying training will need updating. I recently, I was recently reading a book about how people can change by using gamification of their lives. This one here, actually it's a big book. Don't rush out and buy it, but it's Jay McGonigal's book, super better. Don't rush out and buy it. It's a heavy, it's not heavy read, but you just need to churn, chop way through it. It's fine. Um, it helps you gamify things. So if you exercise for 10 days in a row, then you get to eat a take-up meal or you go to see a movie, that kind of thing. Uh, little rewards, guys, little rewards. I'm currently building a course precisely to help people transform from structured organizations to entrepreneurship, to go from an ordered organization to chaos. And gamification plays a role in this. And that's called the Spin Recovery Program. And you can contact me if you want to be involved in that. It's all about um, setting yourself straight, getting some order back into your lives. It runs for two months. It's a couple of grand uh, and we change you for the better. All right. But, um, and it's me versus five people. So I've taken all the gamification then into the aerialist syllabus because we need to build self-reliance and self-resilient or resilient aviators for the future. My interests that I do outside on working day uh, and that seemingly having little to do with my work and often feed directly back into my job. Yeah, so I've said that twice. That's interesting. So in short, when pilots leave the military, they do one of two things. They fly airliners, take a desk job or change the world. One of three things. I wrote three things in there. So I'm trying to do the latter. Now, one of the things I was going to just amplify a little bit uh, I'm interested in architecture for some reason. I don't know where that came from, but you know, I go to Berlin quite a bit and Oslo recently and some other cities and I take books and, and I read about all the, the buildings out there and who designed them and everything. I'm into watches. I take watches apart, you know, um, and uh, I kind of get into a bit of watchmaking. I never knew where that came from. That's weird. I'm getting into music now. I'm a bit into people like Stormzy and stuff. <laughs> Shut up. Um, I've always liked rap music. I always have, mainly West Coast. I got a bit into Biggie Smalls, a bit more of the East Coast vibe. And I've always been interested in lyricists and, and the way they can manipulate words. And it's fantastic. And I'm very interested in the music that's coming out of London for some reason. I don't know why at the moment. Uh, so I listen to these things, uh, really how they're built, um, how they, how they, you know, how they're, they're sort of rapping over the top of that. Wordsmiths, in effect, wordsmiths. Although I don't particularly like poetry. So this guy writes to me. Oh, that's all new, guys. That's all new to me, really. It's really weird. Um, so... I wasn't really, and it can be back into work a lot by by doing things that you you find interesting. It's called associative conditioning and the default mode network of your brain. I've written a an art, I've written a thing about that before, one of my blogs. It's why when you're in the shower, all of a sudden you go, oh, I know the answer to this thing, because you've thought long and hard about it, and then you've you've not done any thinking about it, and your brain's just ordered that all all that stuff puts together, and it comes up with an answer. So I do a lot of that, a lot of thinking. And that's why I'm not drinking all week to get some thinking done on this service inquiry report. Um, and we've got some presentations for Aerialist end of the week as well. I really want to clear mine for that. So I'm going to give myself a bit of a break from the beers because I think I can think deeper without the beers, if that makes sense. Unfortunately, the beers don't leave you when you leave the service. Right, conformity, repressing creativity. That's what this chat wrote to me about. So let's have a look then, shall we? His email then comes in and I will just skip a little couple of lines on it because there's only, I think he just goes into where he is. So he says, hi, Tim. We met briefly at something that I was doing a couple of weeks ago, shall we say. 
where you were kind enough to speak to some friends and I about aerialists, the gamification of flying training and other topics. Um, my group spent time after discussing these ideas and were all in agreement that they were, on, that they were among the most interesting concepts we saw at the particular place they were. On behalf of the group, I just wanted to pass on our thanks to yourself, the CEO of Aerialis and other members of the team for giving up your valuable time to talk to us. It's perfectly right, actually. I really found it a very interesting conversation, actually, and it's great to see that the um, the services are still employing the, that quality of young person. That's what I find interesting. Is like you haven't reduced the quality. There's still quality people coming in. And of course, I don't teach students anymore, do I, at the moment? So I miss that a lot. I miss um, interacting with those guys and girls. He continues, I'm a long-time follower of FJP and pay particular interest to your insights on psychology and human factors. You recently wrote a core post stating, and I'll read it again, this line, you're required to conform to standard and conformity is the enemy of creativity. Eventually this makes you sad, but in general, you just get worn down after a while. Yeah, I did write that because I believe it to be true. Um, and he carries on here with, this struck a particular resonant note with me and if you have time I'd really appreciate some advice well I'm the advice guy throw it out there now by background he did a lot he did a lot of stuff with tech in the background some quite interesting creative stuff with technology let's say um and he finds himself at odds with the system in the way we approach challenges so this guy's in flying training uh, I think he's quite advanced don't need to know what school he's at that's fine but let's just say that he's he's um in the military in the UK and he's got a bit of an issue with the system. Now, he's been in a long time as well, remember? I think about five years. It's taken a long time to get through the flying training system, as we know. And, of course, you know, I am quite critical of that. And I think we all should be critical of that. Um, we should be critical of that. And I know the service is doing something about it. Either way, fine. I was saying this back in 2011. Wasn't listened to. This is what you get. So he says um, he finds himself at odds with the system. In the way we approach challenges... To the point where, you know, other people are taking the piss out of him. And it happened to me as well when I was going through. It was like, just chill. You know what I mean? Just get your flying done. And I got that and I understood that. And he's just going through the same thing. So, unfortunately, his ideas fall on deaf ears because he's just a student. Um, and, of course, at the moment, he can't generate any change himself. He's got the drive. He's got the technical knowledge. And he'd like to change the world. He's within a system that does not value that. Now, I'll talk about it in a minute in my email because we do value that. Value. That was a tea break for me, guys. Do apologise. Right. Harley and culture seem, in my opinion, to exist only in word in the Air Force, although it does talk a very good game in this respect. You know, I agree with you there, mate. Now, thinking the win strategy ticks all the right boxes, but I sense if you ask almost any middle manager uh, what it was and how it can be applied, you'll be met with a rather blank expression. The vital importance of an innovation culture has simply not translated from the strategic to tactical level of everyday business. This mindset is not only absent, Presently, but perhaps more worryingly, seems to be actively discouraged throughout training. Um, yeah, I get that rather than fostered, yeah. At times I found the culture so stifling that I've considered maybe, you know, doing something else. And I think what he means by that is, you know, getting out of Dodge um, and actually going to a company or an organization where it'd be valued. I'll address that in a second because this is quite a common thing. I'll address that in a second. But he doesn't. He says here, I don't want to become worn down, partially for my own sanity, but moreover because I know that the acceptance of defeat means that I will not be able to influence the Air Force in any way. Um, and he feels it does need to be influenced. And of course it does. Uh, and everyone does, by the way. You all influence it. I was in the Air Force for a fifth of its life. And uh, obviously I have influenced the Air Force in some way, good and bad, I'm sure. So he does say, look, it's an increasingly complex and contested battle space out there and he'd like to be able to you know, work towards solving that. He wants to start breaking the mold. 
eager. I like that. Uh, he says, I appreciate you seeing me busy. And any advice I can give him on being worn down will be gratefully received. I wrote him a really long email, actually. So I'm going to go over that email with you. And um, as I said, this is this is quite common. I get these kind of emails uh, quite often by people, as you can imagine, that are either holding in training, going, what am I doing? Why am I, why am I still doing this to myself is a big call from some of these young people. And I'm like, yeah, why are you still doing this to yourself, buddy? Because there's a big world out there, as I'm finding now. And I wish I'd left the Air Force a bit earlier, to be honest with you, to go and make some more change in the world. Because you find if you have that drive when you're outside, a lot of people don't have that drive. I talk about this in my next in, in my email, and I will cover this in a, in a second. But if you if you have drive outside the Royal Air Force, you can do some really great things. You can piss some people off as well, by the way, but you can do some great things. And I cover why you can piss people off here, because we're finding it with Aeronist at the moment where obviously we're we're our ideas are quite ahead of industry and industry is just going look guys just chill for a bit let us catch up with you and now we can discuss it and that's one of the tactics for aerialists at the moment is to come back to where industry is so we can message into it right so i wrote back then i haven't had a reply when did i write back to this dude so i'm wearing a classic rolex that doesn't have a date on it brilliant i wrote back to him on uh, what's that? About eight days ago. Hasn't replied yet. Noted. No, it's fine. I know I know the guy's busy. He's trying to um, do his flying training. Isn't he? I wrote back. I said, firstly, I apologise that it's taken me two weeks to get back to you. I have a huge email backlog and mark the ones that I need to pay attention to with a red flag so that I can address them properly. Yours is such an email. It's an important email to me. Red flag it. Okay, to be honest, you'll probably be more comfortable in the Royal Navy. I joined, <laughs> and it's true, I joined the Royal Navy from university and found it very interesting um, and very, very, very interested in change theory. And the seniors actually seem to listen to those at all levels. I feel there is an arrogance in the Royal Air Force that was missing in the Royal Navy. The Royal Navy is, after all, the senior service and probably feels it has less to prove. During your time in the Royal Air Force, you probably realise that the service tends to live in the past. Um, I'm at the Royal Air Force Club a lot, and the past is all over the walls. It talks about the Battle of Britain a lot and, and seems to live in a special three and a half months around 1940. Uh, it will talk about the future, and it doesn't really know what it means. The future is incredibly complex, and the RAF will talk about the future space, but it is yet to define what war, future warfighting looks like. And to be honest, it isn't alone in this regard. I know the United States Air Force and, uh, is, is doing a lot of work in this as well. Well, I am as well. For errors. So as for creativity and conformity, I'm having a personal issue with this now also, and one that you might recognize. So here's the thing. Uh, and I, I, I just talk this, I'll talk this through this. So it says in here, yesterday, my wife and I went back up to Anglesey to a house we still own there. The mission was to rescue some things so that we could sell slash rent the house out exactly, you know, etc. I haven't been back to Valley for a few months, but when I do, <laughs> when I do go back, the same thing happens. Now, remember that I was at Valley for 11 years, so which is two very long tours with a bit of Afghan in the middle and an eight-month service inquiry. Um, as we approach the island along A55, and so we're going westbound now on the North, North Wales coast, uh, you can see the weather structure over Anglesey. Times over the years, and I start to think about the Valley, Metar and Tafts. I can't help it, it just happens. Now, the Metar and Tafts are the weather report for that valley at the time. And the TAF is the, the Terminal Aerodrome Forecast, I believe it stands for, which is the future weather. So I'm looking at this weather structure, looking at the trees for the wind, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, what is the weather at Valley? What would I be flying with tomorrow? What's the weather structure coming in? Um, what are the fronts? All that kind of stuff, you know. 
I start thinking about it. Um, my wife finds this kind of funny. So she always gets her phone out to see um, how accurate I am. And she Googles it and finds it. And after 11 years of doing this, I'm pretty accurate, strangely enough. But another thing happens, and that is my brain starts firing on a rapid level. Um, and the way I recognize that is through anxiety, all right, through anxiety. It's weird, and I try and make out that it's not happening, but my wife always notices. To be honest, the only way I can shut it down is, is normally with a few beers in the evening. So I recommend the guy's careful of this in his career because it can become a real issue, believe me, and it's very common. Hence, you know, let's take some time out from beers and stuff. Uh, beers, actually, the way beer, the way alcohol works is, is not the way you, you probably think. Um, it will elevate your dopamine and then your brain will put, um, it's depressant, of course, so your brain will, will, will say, oh, hang on a second. Uh, well, actually, wrong. Your brain's alcohol will depress you, so you, your body then puts loads of dopamine in and it gets this vicious, vicious cycle until eventually you, you just go to bed because you just poison yourself so much the body just shuts down. Yeah, so we used to do quite a lot of that in the bar. It doesn't really happen anymore, and that's a good thing, all right? So be very careful of the beers shutting your brain down into the, the day. So I've thought about why my brain might be firing, and I've even spoken to a psychiatrist about it. The military has some good ones. Don't be afraid to use them. You're worth a lot of money to the military, so they don't stop you flying. I saw a psychiatrist twice, by the way. They don't stop you flying. Although he did say, if you have to come and see me again, I'll stop you flying. Didn't see him again, did I? I'm not an idiot. Um, just flew with mental health issues for the next four years. It's thought then that the reason my brain goes into alert mode when I get onto the island is because it's protecting me from what it sees as a threat. And the last year's valley were very much a threat to it. Well, I can caveat with that I had a great team and I, and I eventually I appointed um, a deputy flight commander and his sole and the reason I did it was so he could stop me flying when my brain was on something else. There was a lot of paperwork. There was a squadron with three flight commanders and a boss. Um, luckily, we had some great admin staff, civilian admin staff. Um, the lady is fantastic and she's great, so she helps. Um, and our deputies help, but we had about 80 pilots on the squadron. Now, on a Jaguar squadron back in the day, you'd probably have about nine pilots, maybe 12. And I've got 80, you know, so there's a lot of work going on. So my deputy flight commander, who's a lovely bloke, um, very talented guy, he was able to stop me flying. So he'd come up and say, hey, do you reckon you should fly on that? today Tim because good that's what he was there for and he was very good at it as well very good at it so but my brain's obviously hyper vigilant it's trying to protect me it's trying to say look it becomes a real pain to be honest like I can't relax and I have to be doing something complicated like fixing something or or flying airplanes or keeping the squadron pilots alive that's what my brain's doing so back in the days of valley post 2012 um it was a hostile place insofar as what was happening on the squadron it wasn't safe so what uh, eventually we did is we commissioned an operational event analysis from the Royal Air Force Centre for Aviation Medicine and that's they came and they do a two-week report they do lots of interviews and eventually they, they recommended the squadron was shut down uh, and we did we shut it down for six months to all student flying and that allowed me to get all my instructors trained because of course you probably don't realize this but UKMFTS at the time so the flying training system at the time prioritized um, student output over instructor teaching and you've got to teach instructors to fly instructors don't just come back from Typhoon and instruct. They have about a nine-month course. But by prioritising the students, we weren't getting the instructors in the door. Either way, it doesn't matter, but I was fighting these battles. Um, but if you are listening to this and you are military, the OEA, if they're still doing them, I don't know, but it's a free safety audit by RAFCAM, and they've done loads of squadrons across the Army, uh, the Royal Navy and the Air Force, uh, and it's very, very valuable, but your boss might not like it. Now, any boss worth his salt will like it. Um, he will say, yeah, by all means, come in and do a safety audit. It's a free safety audit of your squadron and it tells you exactly what you're doing wrong now if you think about the Stanavel visits this is what upsets me a little bit and i'll probably talk about this this about this more in the reds service inquiry hopefully i'll do it next week trying to do one of these every week now um 
think about stand, standard evaluation, come onto the squadron and they have a look at all your documentation, your paperwork. It's like a CFS visit. Um, if you think about the weeks, if you're in the military, think about the weeks preceding that when your boss says, we've got to get all the books in line, we've got to get make sure everything's all right and runs around for two weeks frantically. I was always upset about that. I always felt it should have been a, a snap inspection. We should always have tried to keep our books. And also if they came and they found something about the squadron that we didn't like, well, that was a good thing. That was a positive because now we can change it. But just doing those two weeks worth of getting yourself squared away for a visit, um, for a trapper's visit, well, that to me was ridiculous because you're not learning anything. Anyway, digressing, guys, what we're talking about here. So if you are in the military in OEA, Operational Event Analysis, just call RAFCAM up. I'll speak to one of the psychologists down there and um, see if you can tee one of those up. So I continue. So my brain sees Valley as hostile and starts firing away to make me safer. It doesn't realise yet that I'm not flying anymore. It doesn't know. Um, it's like a guy that's been bitten by a dog and now is scared of all dogs. Yeah, because you've been bitten by a dog once, you don't realise these other dogs aren't going to bite you. But because you've been bitten by a dog, your brain's like, every dog is going to bite me. Um, so when it, whenever a brain sees Valley or, or I'm back in the village, uh, it thinks I have to be super alert. So why is this relevant to conformity slash creativity? Well, because if you're just trying to keep yourself and your buddies alive every day, you have nothing left to do anything else with. So by conforming to what the service demands from you, there is no room for creativity. They, they actively oppose each other. Um, have you ever noticed that people with low arousal jobs have interesting hobbies and those with high arousal jobs don't? It's, it's a trend, guys. It's not saying it's an absolute. Your brain will demand a balance. And so if you go flying every day, high arousal, then the evening will tend to be watching a movie or going to the bar. All being there. All being there. Uh, some of us still are. Right. It becomes a problem when you leave the military as I've yet to find anything to occupy my brain in such a way as flying did. It makes sense to me. The best thing is to have breaks in your flying. This means your brain can rest. And I didn't have a break in 20 years. My break was Afghanistan for 20 months, uh, for six months um, and a service inquiry immediately after for about another five active, eight total, but five active really before I start flying. You need those three-year ground tours just to brain to settle from flying, get normalized and get back in the jet again before you forget how to do it. I didn't have that in 20 years. And that's fine. I didn't have it. I'm just, you know, dealing with those kind of those things now where I'm just trying to calm this thing down. Um, I do say to this guy, I think that he's ahead of the RF thinking when he talks of change. The RF is very conservative in nature and it has to be by definition because if it wasn't, it'd be volatile. And one thing servicemen and women hate is change. And you know that if you're in the services, you hate change. We say we do, but we actually like routine and structure. That's why you joined. You probably haven't realized it yet but wait until you're on the frontline squadron and your start and end times differ every single day. You'll want a regimented start time very soon. If you don't, your partner will because it's annoying to not have a routine. All right, Aerolist is already, sorry, Aerolist is head of the industry at the moment too. So much so that industry is telling us to go slower so they can understand what we're doing. Change in the RAF takes an awful amount of time. I've been writing about the RAF since 2011 and they still fail to openly engage with me. The RAF and Army both tell their pilot applicants um, to read my page. Uh, some of the careers officers say go and read Tim's blogs and then if you still want to go and be a pilot that's cool um, the Navy especially do that so it's formally done by the Navy in some er in some areas um, so when they go to the careers office some guys are like hey we read Tim's blog and I know OASC know about FJP because a lot of people say you know they've read FJP and um, they say that when they're at OASC and I know they do because crikey some of the guys on OASC actually actually write to me so and that's good though isn't it because but here's the thing. This is what I'm trying to say to the guys. The RF engages poorly with their future workforce. 
Right. And why is that? So the RF engages poorly with the future workforce. As they say, they don't have a recruitment issue, which is true, but they do have a retention issue as guys like this guy just get fed up being in flying training for five years, whatever, not being able to um, to action anything or to, to change anything for or to, to reach in and, and, you know, do anything uh, outside of his flying. And then they leave. Now, when you leave, they have a real recruitment issue because people they need to recruit and train, they have to find a new you because you've just left. So I just say recently, a bit of a personal thing about one of the senior officers I was speaking to in the military recently who gave me a call. And we just talked about recruitment and of guys uh, like myself back into the service and retention of guys like myself also. And of course, it's a difficult time for the service. And it, it, yeah, when I was saying this in 2011, it's going to be difficult. Uh, and it is. And it's too late for them now. They're sending pilots all over the world by the sounds of it. And when they're in this place, what you have to realise with the service as well, guys, I digress, is it's like a, it's like a, an, an, a like a, one of those big ore tankers in the sea. So when it starts doing something, by the time it realises it's in trouble, it's still got another four miles to slow down. So what you'll see now is going to get worse before it gets better. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. So now everyone's going, wow, it's really bad, isn't it? I'm sure it's going to get better. It's like, no, 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 listen to me. It's bad. It's going to get a lot worse and then it will start to get better. Okay. So that's, I'll talk about that with the service inquiry next week. Not that I'm saying the reds are getting better. The reds will probably get, the reds are getting worse. I'm sure the reds will get better. I'm sure the reds are squared away. All this stuff at a moment. Um, I said, I agree that the culture is stifling and individualism is frowned upon. You are very similar to those around you. The RF does not reward individual thought in any way at all. Um, I put that in there and I was, when I wrote that, I was like, hang on a second. Uh, kind of, you know, there's a reason for this. I say the issue here is that the message is always lost at the wing commander slash group captain level. So flight lieutenants and realistic squadron leaders see the issues on the shop floor and try to do something about it. But squadron bosses, they just want to literally get out of their command tour if they can without rocking the boat. Um, I think the messages from the squadron aircrew and engineers get filtered by the command level and the seniors in the service end up thinking everything's okay. Now, I speak to seniors sometimes, very seniors. As I said, I'm in and out of the Royal Air Force Club like every week at the moment because um, we kind of base out, out of that for airiness when we're in London a lot of time. We have meetings there and I do speak to the seniors and some training is doing all right. And I'm like, all right, don't know how you heard that from because it's not because if it was doing all right, you wouldn't be sending people all over the world for their flying training. Um, or your T6 will be flying if it's not, or it is, but not as much. Maybe the Armed Forces Continuous Attitude Survey that recently said the RF personnel felt lowest level of value by their service at 30% might have some effect, but I doubt it. Yeah, so that Armed Forces Continuous Attitude Survey that came out recently, the lowest out of all three services, the Royal Air Force personnel felt the lowest level of value by their service at 30%. That's amazing, 30%. I wrote an essay on this, wasn't it? It was something along the lines of, um, don't tell me I'm valued or don't keep telling us we're valued unless you truly value us or something like that. Um, I think that was one of the reasons I started to look to leave the service because I think the problem was people kept telling us we were valued and then they were changing the pension. I think Wednesday sports afternoon disappeared. I think um, working hours were getting longer, more people were leaving, nothing was being put in place, fine training was falling apart, frontline squadrons were hurting for manning and it was felt to be dangerous. And I'm like, why am I still doing this? And I think four years later, I think I left because I stayed next to four years. So my advice is to accept that you will be worn down by the system and to pick the battles you can win. I always tell people, you know, is this the hill you want to die on when you're fighting a battle? There are some hills that you want to die on, but most of the hills you're fighting is just a hill and there's going to be lots of other hills. So when you fight your battles, have a think about it, all right? I always thought about, is this definitely the hill? And the OEA, the flight 
safety report was a battle that I was willing to die on. And we managed to get that in. I think it probably, well, I know it, I know shutting the squad down for six months allowed me to train my instructors, but I didn't get a very good report from my boss for it. Was not happy, no. Hence, I stayed as a squad leader. Anyway, whatever. My advice here is accept that you'll be worn down with the system. Yeah, so I did say, look, ask advice from your bosses, from your flight commanders. Go and find a flight commander or a senior or a pilot on the squadron who's a senior, a senior guy and he's been around a bit. Uh, he would have gone through this stuff you're going through and sit down with them, get them a drink and, and chat to them and say, look, I feel frustrated with, with things. Am I, is this normal? They would have heard it a thousand times and they would have gone through it themselves. Um, there'll be an instructor that you get on better with than other instructors. It's just the way it is. So go and speak to someone. I mean, the boss can be a good guy to speak to about this because he's a boss for a reason, right? Because most bosses are there because they're good guys, even though they might filter stuff, but they're good guys. Um, and it might be worth sitting down with the boss. Right. So I do say top tip, if you're talking all the time, nobody listens, but if you occasionally only say a few words and everyone pays attention. So again, this is about working out which hill you want to die on, isn't it? Picking the battles you can win. The key for now is to get onto a squadron where you can make a difference. Um, I do say at Valley, we did listen to the students because we knew they were going to come back in three to six years time. And we understand that the innovation started with them, started with young minds, not guys like myself at 45, uh, who's seen too much of the service. I do say don't get, yourself, don't get yourself sacked and do go and see your flight commander about your frustrations. Their job is to listen and give you good advice. Um, that's it, really. So the essay put here, up here, I put an essay for him to look at and it was F you, I won't do what you tell me. And that was to not conform. That was my naval story about writing an essay that the Royal Navy did not like. Yeah, they loved it. Now, the other thing I would suggest is about this is... Um, about conformity is go and have a look at the failing aviator video on YouTube. I'll try and drop another link there. That was a guy, can't remember his name, Lieb, L-E-I-B. Anyway, failing aviator, you'll find it on YouTube. And he is just a flight surgeon talking to uh, naval pilots, I believe it is. Um, and he talks about four main things and the things in there, I've got them down here. He says the, the qualities of a pilot in the military are these four things. And I don't think this has changed today, to be honest with you. So I wrote an essay on this very early on. Um, you must be in control. So if you're, if you're a pilot in the military, you've got these four things. You must be in control. Uh, the male-female interface is characterized by emotional distance. Um, you're a mission-orientated compartmentalizer. And you're extremely predictable. And you are extremely predictable because not only has, not only has the service picked you to come in, to the service you've had to choose yourself to go into the service that makes sense so you had to self-select so you had to say you know what i want to go and do this and there's not many people that want to go and do that um there's a lot of people i get them on fjp all the time and you can see them commenting yeah i'm going to be a fast jet pilot well you're not applying for it you're not doing your homework you're overweight um your diet's poor you're watching youtube videos all the time and you're just on a dopamine fest um you're not putting the effort in if you want to be a fast jet pilot you want to be part of any kind of pilot at all guys um you got to geek out and you got to hit the books you got to be that guy hitting the books 24 7 365 it's got to be in your routine you got to be up like six in the morning get those hours done early that's what i that's what i preach is get out of bed i'm not doing it myself right now because I'm, I'm working from home and all kinds of stuff you know but what i'm saying is you want to be a pilot you got to be that so here's the thing about this when they tell you that you can't be a pilot and it happens to a lot of people they come out of osc and they say no you can't a lot of people write to me and they say, I wish I'd put in more effort. 
because there's always that, if they put a bit more effort in, maybe it was the one thing that would have nudged them inside. So maybe they shouldn't have had that poor quality food that meant they didn't get a great um, score on their aptitude test. You know, maybe maybe they could have been on a few more runs or lifted a few more weights or they could have hit the books a bit harder or they could have taken some time for themselves and got a bit of meditation, that kind of stuff. You know, maybe they they could have just pushed it a little bit and that might be, because the differences are small. The differences are small, okay? You're all there. If you're at OASC, by the way, if, you're, if you've got an appointment at OASC, bang, you're in this kind of bracket, all right? So if you're watching on YouTube right now, <laughs> it doesn't work on a podcast very well. Uh, I'm just showing about foot of space, right? And you're in the, that top of a foot, you know, you're in the top kind of four centimeters of a foot, whatever, okay? And everyone else is as well. So those those people in the top two centimeters are going to become pilots, those in the bottom two centimeters aren't, but you're on that top four centimeters. So how much effort, you know, do you want to waste, really? I reckon you, you kind of geek out on that and you you need to hit the books. You need to just, just surround yourself by it. Where was I reading that? I put something on Facebook today about this. So a guy, I'm going to bring it up here. A guy wrote to me, he's a captain on A320. Um, and he said that I help, you know, I, I say a lot of things and I probably, I write to a lot or people write to me a lot. And I guess I'm, I, I probably spoke to him a while back or something, but he um, sent me something and said, yeah, he's got a couple of kids. Um, he's not pushing them into aviation. He's letting them find out for themselves what they want to do. Brilliant. I love that. Let the young mind develop is what I always say. Um, school. I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? School's designed to get people into the workforce, isn't it? It's not designed to create entrepreneurs or anything. So this is your life you've got so far is you've just gone through schooling. That is just dictating um, dictating your future. It's at the moment. I don't know what's going on with the internet, so I'm just going to try and use my phone. Let's have a look on the phone, shall we? Have I got... Yes, I have. Right, here we go. What, what his email said, um, he talked about... Here we are. I'm not going to read his whole email. He says, surround yourself with the right people, not just men and women, but both. The right people to help you facilitate your vision. And they always say you want to be the most stupid person in the room. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You want to be being dragged up. You know what I mean? Drag people up with you, but be dragged up. Um, so surround yourself with the right people. These are people, also these are people that want to, this is why FJP is a good thing for you, by the way, because everyone on FJP right now, we've got, you know, we've got, well, I'm actually going to run a conference pretty soon. I won't need to talk about it here, but I'm running an FJP flying training conference, um, beers and benches, bring everyone down. And I'm also going to run one for the, the 12 Moors crowd, FJP 12 Moors talking about personal development. We're all going to get together in a room. We're going to have, uh, it's going to be awesome. We're going to have speeches by people. We're going to have exercises and we're going to just hammer the day and make it a real good start. I'm trying to do the, the personal development one in January so we can step off. And I'm trying to do the, um, the, Flying training one around about the same time, a bit later on as well. That one was probably sponsored by Aerolist, I would have thought, the, the flying training one. But flying training conferences got so expensive now, like £2,500 a ticket. I'm like, get out. I'm like, shut up. I'm going to, you know, it's not like that. It's like, I'm not making money out of this. This is for me to um, get everyone back together in flying training and talk. He says, surround yourself with the right people. So do that. And that means going and joining a running club with other people that are interested in running. Do it. Stop being a dick. Stop being a dick. Passion. Find something that motivates you, and obviously discipline is the key right now. So come back to conformity, and let's wrap this up, shall we? Let's wrap this up then. Yeah, unfortunately, this is the thing about flying training. When when flying training took three and a half years, you could suck up the noise. You know what I mean? It's all right. You could suck it up. You're like, this kind of sucks. Every day I'm anxious. I've got the anxiety that Tim talks about. His brain's firing because it's trying to protect him. I know a lot of people that are living with that anxiety in flying training. We all did because if you fail three times in a row, you know you're out, all right? And if you're a jet guy, you might get a shot at rotary or multis. But if you're a rotary or multi guy, you might get an RPAS drive, but you probably won't because those RPAS guys, you know what I mean? They're clever people now. So it's not like 
you know, those are up there. Those guys are, these are the mission guys. Seriously, you, you, our paths is up there in jet flying world and everything else. Um, I know people will say it's not, but I know instructors from our paths. I know students on the course. I know what they go through. I don't think you're going to fall into that. So that's why you have that anxiety and you've got to be able to control that, which is why you've got to have a look at your downtime. Make sure you get that downtime. But for your flying training, you pretty much have to conform to what you're being told, but speak to people above you and say, how can I make much, how can I make more of an impact in this environment um, to uh, make the squadron better or, because you can write for the Air Force. This is why I started writing. Not the Air Force. The Air Force didn't like it at all when I started writing. But guys, there's Twitter out there. There's blogs. Um, yeah, get yourself on Twitter. There you go. Call yourself Flyboy26 and, and say, yeah, I'm going through flying training. Here's, you know, Tim's told me to put some stuff out. And then write some interesting stuff on Twitter. Retweet some interesting things. Go and look into the future of warfighting and what that might mean for, like, the Royal Air Force. Get involved in that. There's... um. Uh, there's Air Power Magazine, interesting things in that. Ask for, to write an article for Air Power Magazine. You know, do some work. I know, you're, I know you're doing flying training. I get all that. I was doing flying training. But your brain just needs to do other stuff. You can't just sit there. You may as well write an essay, right? And people do write essays. They're very interesting. I've written lots of essays. So maybe do something like that. Think, um, okay, what can I do? Um, how can I benefit the squadron I'm on at the moment? You might not be able to, by the way. Uh, and then you're like, well, how do I benefit the next squadron? So what am I going to go on to? Okay, I'm going to go on and fly Chinooks or whatever. Let's have a look at how I might be able to work on a Chinook squadron. <coughs> Excuse me, guys. I'm going to leave it there. I think it's about 40 minutes. I hope it's all right. To be honest, guys, I'll be honest. You know, I, being back in, in the house here and I'm working all over the place at the moment. I'm doing a bit of you know talks here, working for others, that kind of stuff. Um you know, I come back in the evenings and I crack a few beers. And what I find is my, my thoughts aren't as clear now as they were. I'm not writing essays. I'm trying to sort my book out. It's heavily complicated. It's very nuanced and it's in the wrong order. Um, and then there's a reason for that because the editor I had from the start was insistent. And I, I think it's wrong. And the new editor thinks it's right. As in wrong. What I'm doing now is right. That's right. So I really want to get some clarity of thought. And um, that's why I'm dropping the beers. Hopefully the next podcast will be a little bit clearer. That's it. That up. It's crazy, isn't it? Brilliant. Right. I think that's it, guys. Uh, by all means, I am two weeks behind on the emails. So I, I prioritize them on a Saturday morning. And uh, anything to do with mental health comes in and straight out normally. Um, but remember, you're young. And what I say to a lot of people, it's not a, it's not a chemical imbalance in your brain. It's just that you, you've, got a, you've got a difficult life. So um, by all means, keep writing to me about that. Anything else? Yeah, it's about two weeks, guys. Two weeks. I'll try and do them on trains and stuff like that. Thanks for listening. 43 minutes. Appreciate it. Tim Davies.